0: Welcome to Call to the Far Shore. I'm James. Hey, everybody. I'm Andy. And we have a jam-packed episode today. We, we have so much that you should get yourself a nice cup of coffee, settle down in a comfy chair, and uh, and get ready for today's episode. Yeah. So, so, Andy, if people are tuning in for the first time, uh, they're going to be expecting a deep conversation about mission and discipleship but what we yeah. are going to find here is they're
1: actually going to find some 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 musical interludes. <laughs> so perhaps if this is the first time you're ever listening to one of our Call to the Far Shore pods, stop now and go listen to another one <laughs> to, get, to, to see what it's like and then come back to this one because it's about to get a little bit weird.
0: It is about to get a little weird. Yeah. Um, so just for those of you that are here, for great deep discussions. Please hold on, because we have an interview coming up today with Rick Maples from Africa Inland Mission. Mm -hmm. He talks about his work with um, African refugees uh, around the world, Um, it's a really good interview. So so hold on if you need to. But uh, a few weeks back, uh, I was learning some Portuguese, and I set a challenge for Andy and I, which was to produce a Portuguese song. I believe that I said that to really show mastery of a language, you have to be able to sing in that language. (laughs) Uh, So for the last few weeks, Andy and I have been uh, working on these Portuguese songs. Mm -hmm. And in the last 48 hours,
1: both of us have actually produced them. Well, well, produced, I think, is a very strong word, at least speaking about mine. Mm -hmm. I haven't heard yours yet, James. And I haven't heard yours yet, Andy. So, uh...
0: um, So who wants
1: to go first, Andy? Well, I think the, the 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 better looking pair or person in our pair should go first. So, so you, James. Oh, is that right? Oh, thanks, Sandy. <laughs> thanks, Sandy. Um,
0: so, yeah. Uh, do we have to give some background about the song, or do we just just play it and go for
1: it? I so well, like I said a few podcasts ago, as long as our listeners have a very low expectation of what I have produced, then that's Brill. Um, and, okay. and 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 just 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 imagine you're on a Brazilian beach, bit of carnival and, and okay that's-, that's that's for your song okay well for my
0: song, um, it, it was going to go the uh, Brazilian carnival route, uh, but through through many changes I've uh, gone the Sue George route. <laughs> um, so anyway, let's play it and uh, Andy, we'll see what you think.
2: Father English, no, we cannot relate. Pokevoso now also translate. But I've heard it don't work well, bro. Sin last demo, so.
1: You should sell this to google for a bit of a, a an advert a commercial a google translate commercial this is it this yeah this is the backing track to it this is the backing track this is how google ends up sponsoring mm-hmm. the podcast yeah there's that that's it wow that was two minutes and 49 seconds of pure joy, James. Mm. That was really yeah. good. No, seriously, you put a, that was a load of work into that. So I feel really bad now about my little 15-minute pop job that I did. Just, just think about how little my kids have been educated this week um, because of that important important work that's been going on. I thought you were like homeschooling music because it's not like the music project. I I was going to get the kids to do the backing vocals, but it it didn't work out that way in the end. So
0: and actually uh, our listeners, they actually got to only listen to to two verses of the song. As my wife, as my wife said, uh, two verses was enough to give people a real feel for the song. Oh, yes. Uh, Even more. So but there is there is a third verse floating out there, Andy. (laughs) <laughs> um, so, and you know, I, if people want to hear that third verse, i tell you what, if we get, uh, if we get five positive reviews on Apple podcasts, I, I may, I may consider releasing, uh, the third verse of Google translate.
1: So <laughs> anyway, so that the bar set, Andy,
0: the bar, is, Man,
1: set, and Andy, the bar okay? is set very, very high. I am going to be singing Google translate in my head for the rest of the day now. Google Translate. I am now going to listen to to Andy's
0: song. So uh, here we go.
1: conversando oh, e It's over Andy, it's over okay. <laughs>
0: 70%, 70% music, 30% lyrics there. So good, good yeah. work,
1: Andy. And uh, not, even, not even perhaps very good lyrics. Uh, yeah, so, I mean,
0: I realised that both our songs have Portuguese lyrics that that people don't know. So should we actually let people know the Portuguese lyrics? What did you
1: actually say, Andy? It's probably best not even to, 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 to tell them. I basically talked about Samba, getting off the floor, moving a bit because james and andy are talking about god and mission and faith oh. <laughs> <laughs> do that, uh, so do you know what did you understand any of my portuguese in in a song i was enjoying it so much and laughing so much that uh, i only got the bit where you you told me i looked like a horse i remember that bit that was very good yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> so, well, well, maybe we'll save we'll save the lyric breakdown uh, for another week. So, what we're going to do now is we're going to take those songs and we're going to play them for the girls at Revive, and we're going to get them to uh, vote on a winner. Mm. So, and we will let you guys know in a couple of weeks uh, what the results of that competition is, um, and we'll we'll see. <laughs>
1: but James, we'll, uh, do you have? You, you've already, you already have the moral victory, man. Even if the girls come back saying they're like mine, which it probably will, because it's a Brazilian beat. But you have the moral victory. You have won. That was amazing. Good job. I feel really bad. Okay, excellent, Andy. Well, there we go. Okay, well let's uh,
0: let's let's get on to some more uh, to some more serious matters. We'll get on to our interview with Rick, and then um, let's listen to that interview, and then we'll come back with a few thoughts at the end to close. Mm-hmm. So welcome, Rick. Thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to, to be interviewed.
3: My pleasure. Thanks, James.
0: It's good. Yeah. good to chat with you. Good. Excellent. So, Rick, we first met back in 2001. Uh, I was a high school student, just finished with high school, and uh, either you had the pleasure or I had the pleasure of uh, spending <laughs> a year together uh, in Bonjogi in Kenya. Uh, you were a missionary with Africa Inland Mission, I think by that stage, you've been there for three or four years by the
3: time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we me. arrived in 1998.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. So, but since then, uh, a lot has happened. Um, you didn't spend the last 20 odd years in Monjogi. Um, you've been to another part of Kenya, and now you find yourself back in, in the States. So, could you maybe just tell our listeners a little bit about how you ended up in Kenya in the first place, uh, and then the kind of your journey within Africa and in, inland mission to, to where you are today?
3: yeah we uh, we ended up in Kenya because um, my wife did a short-term trip in Kenya, and we had uh, we had talked about being missionaries at one point. Um, we were we had a very specific plan. We would raise our kids um, in America, and we would uh, do missions as a retirement gig. Maybe if the house was paid off and the kids were in college, that that's when we could look at it. And then God through a crazy set of circumstances, God ended up uh, having my wife Carrie go to uh, Kenya. And she came back ready to be missionaries full-time, and but she said to herself, you know, if God really wants this, then he can tell that guy, not me. So she didn't tell me anything about it. And mm-hmm. so some time went by, and um, probably a couple of months, and I had a kind of thought we saw some change happening ahead of time, and we kind of looked at different things, and I um, challenged by the pastors, not really in missions, but just um, with the trying new things, and I said, Hey, Carrie, what if we looked at doing missions for a couple of years that would get us back to the U.S. before our daughter started school? And uh, maybe that could work out. And then so we, she said, oh, okay. And then um, I came downstairs that day, and she had all the um, applications for Africa in the mission (laughs) filled out already. Yeah. On the table, I said, oh, well, what's this? And she said, oh, yeah, I've just been waiting for you. And so from there, like, I think it was almost nine months to the day we walked off an airplane in Nairobi and wow. with um, all of our support, and it was just incredible journey. So, yeah, and when we started in um, in Kenya, we started a secondary school. Uh, we were supposed to go and teach at a secondary school, and then we got there, and the school hadn't started yet. And so they asked us if we would be the headmaster, and I have no... Though I felt like I was going to be comfortable teaching math and business and religion, I had no teaching experience so to be the administrator was awkward but um god brought us through that and um, through that we met some incredible people even um even james came at one point and uh it was uh, we had a variety of people come through to be volunteers during that time and that was that was about 7 years and during that time we um we we started a foundation we started led, laid the foundation for the school um we started off what we felt was on the right track um but as the tr- school got bigger um, the the sort of the wall between the administration and the students built up as it would. Um, so when we, were, when we had 20 students, we had a great relationship for the students. They'd come down, they'd um, come to our house once a week, and we'd have a little party, and it was wonderful. But then as we had 200 students, that became less, you know, it became more of an administrative task. And that's not really what we felt called to do, so um, we really wanted to be doing ministry. So we looked to the different areas, and uh, we ended up moving to northern Kenya, and we lived and worked amongst a uh, unreached people group called the Samburu people. And there, we did more traditional church planting and evangelism. And we trained some guys um, in chronological Bible storying. And um, yeah, the, God really blessed that ministry. We had people come to faith and were discipled. And um, we—that was just a sweet, really a sweet um, sort of chapter of ministry for us. Then after that, uh, Africa in the Mission asked me to move to Nairobi and to oversee the work in Kenya and Tanzania. So I did that.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And then while we were doing that, we um, we saw things back home. We saw our uh, my wife's mother and my father both had cancer, and we saw that this was going to likely be lead to the end of their lives. And so we we chose to move back to the United States and be um, present uh, for them during that time. And uh, as, as it worked out, at the same time, uh, African American Mission was starting a new um, sort of division called the Diaspora work. We call it a region to fit with the nomenclature of the mission. But, um, and so that's what I do now. I lead a group of people that make disciples uh, among Africans who have left the continent of Africa. And we concentrate on people from unreached people groups. So. We have folks all over the world, and I oversee the sort of the global work.
0: Oh, that's good. On. Okay, and diaspora. What is? Can you define that word for me?
3: Yeah, it is. It is kind of funny to be doing something that everybody every time you tell somebody about it, they say, "Oh, that's oh, that's so awesome." Uh, what's that word be? So, yeah, diaspora is really people that have been dispersed, and um, you know, God has used people on the move for a lot of years, oftentimes to spread the gospel. One of the first diasporas we saw was. Um, after Stephen was stoned, the church ran away and the church ran off from Jerusalem and they brought the gospel to other places. Well, now what we're finding is that there is a diaspora. The Africans are leaving the continent like no other time in history. And many of them are from unreached people groups and many of them are also from closed countries. And they're moving to places that we can share the gospel openly. And so those are the people, the people that are on the move are who we're looking to reach out to.
0: Sure. And some of our listeners, could you just another definition as well? When we talk about non-reached people groups, Mm. um, you know, I think people would automatically think of maybe some tribe in South America that's never seen civilization or never seen people before. Is that what you mean by a non-reached people group or what, what do we can you define that kind of concept for us?
3: Uh, that's part of what we mean. For sure, there are people like that, but far more, there are people, especially from um, Muslim predominant countries, that they don't have access to the gospel. And that's usually what we call, uh, like the, the missiological definition is usually people that are less than 2% evangelical. We consider them unreached. And it's what we're finding is that when, when we have a critical mass of believers, especially evangelical believers, then they can they can um, self-populate, so they can um, we would call them reproducing indigenous churches. So they can reproduce on their own, but until that point, uh, they just don't have access to the gospel. And there are so many people who have they. I wouldn't know how many haven't heard the name Jesus, but they have a completely distorted view of who Jesus is.
0: Okay. So could you maybe <clears throat> maybe a, tell us a story that maybe sums up what you do that kind of encompasses that whole, the whole idea of what you do and the vision of what you
3: do. There was a guy that came from North Africa. I'm going to be a little bit vague to protect identities, but he came and he uh, moved close to uh, one of the teams of people that we have working in the United States. And this, um, this team has a, a help center where they bring people in and they teach them English and they'll, maybe they'll help them learn how to drive or they'll, um, they'll kind of walk with them as they're doing paperwork, as, trying to, as they try to land in the U.S., just helping them along the way. So this guy came, and he was learning English at uh, one of our centers, and during that time, he was able to meet one of our, our guys there who's uh, an, a missionary kid from Africa, from West Africa, who spoke French, and so this guy being from North Africa spoke French also, so they started speaking in French. And then um, he was led to Christ in French in the United States. Wow. And so from there, yeah, it's pretty incredible. so from there, he's been discipled, and he's learning. He's like a sponge. But at the same time, he's got crazy trouble at home. Um, His family has heard that he's a believer, and that has caused great distress. And um, even recently, he— he ran off and he was living in a really cold place and they couldn't find him. And so they found him in a car somewhere and he was in a bad place. But again, we've, um, we, we, we found him and we, there, he, he brought them out of the car and talked to him and continue the discipleship. We've now connected him with another North African pastor just to kind of help him talk through some of the things. And, um, now he's trying to figure out his life, but he's, he's a believer in Christ, and he's being discipled, interestingly enough, in French. But um, but I think that sums it up. And the reason is because is our people, they get involved in the mess of life. And uh, if you start talking to people who have immigrated um, anywhere, they have a messy story. And so being involved in that mess is how we get—that's how we get a voice to talk to these people. Mm-hmm. But it's the gospel that really speaks, and so as wonderful as that is to help people out, we don't want to have a bunch of people that are really good drivers that are from Africa. What well, we sure. want to have, we would rather have a bunch of really lousy drivers, but who have been disciples into Christ. <laughs> so,
2: Yeah,
3: yeah,
0: that kind of makes sense. Rick, why do you think there is a, a need um, to have these individuals out there with specific? Uh, A specific mission, the specific idea of reaching um, these Africans in the area. You know, within cities, there are many churches and good churches too. People living in these open countries, why do we not naturally reach out and embrace uh, people coming in from outside?
3: Yeah, oftentimes it's through, it's because of lack of being envisioned. People just don't see it. And it's, it, it sort of depends on the area that you live in. Uh, you go to certain parts of the country, and it, you drive through that area, and it's like you're living in North Africa. I mean, all the many of the signs are in Arabic, and it's quite obvious. And so, and to be honest, there are a lot of churches that are doing things. What tends to happen, though, is that we see that if people do, if people are involved with um, immigrants, they're usually involved in helps, and unfortunately, they depend on the deeds and they don't use the words. And people come to faith because of words and deeds. You you can't really separate the two. You have to help people out. You can't just just go and give gospel tracts and expect people to flood into the kingdom. You have to tell people about Christ. But at the same time, if people are destitute and really having a hard time in life, if you don't help them out, they're not going to listen to what you're saying. So we're not like buying our way into their lives. We're just being good humans. And... Uh, we are we are making sure that we're taking care of people's needs. But at the same time, if we're really caring for this person, if we really care for them, we're going to want to take care of their et- eternal life and not just their temporal life. So at some point, that person is going to pass away. And what are we doing for their eternity? And so that's what we want to be involved in. And so I think part of it is if there is, a, um, I think oftentimes there's some prejudice against people from an Islamic background. Um and people are afraid. People don't people don't know how to approach folks. And so sometimes it's really frustrating because people don't, but at other times people they just don't know how. And so it's easier to not do anything than it is to try to figure out how. So we have people that are able to come in and say, Hey, do you want to help out? Let me let me walk along with you. I'm gonna we're gonna maybe we're gonna do some English classes, maybe we're going to do some other helps programs. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to also help you to know how you can share your faith with these people. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's what it is. I think a lot of it is ignorance. There is definitely some prejudice sprinkled in here and there, but a lot of it is, um, man, I wish I could do something, but I don't know what to do. So it's easier to do nothing.
0: Kind of what you described there um, is, is discipleship. I mean, that's what it is. It's discipleship. It's relational building, it's addressing both the the physical needs of someone and the spiritual needs of someone. That kind of holistic approach to mission. How do you though then, especially when you're an organisation that's kind of supported by raising raising funds, raising support from people too. Oftentimes, people are looking for results. Um, how do you kind of measure results? Because that whole process of Someone coming in that's never heard the gospel before, who's in dire need, obviously we're spending a lot of time addressing that need. And then, you know, it's it, like you said, it's not just giving someone a gospel tract, it's maybe introducing someone to the gospel and then spending months or maybe even years walking with them through that. So it just sounds very inefficient in a way. So, so how, how do you measure success in, in what you're doing?
3: Yes, that's a great question, and it's one that our mission struggles with all the time. How do we, you know, as an organization, how do we measure success? And what we, what we sort of come up with is that we really—if we're proclaiming the gospel, we're doing our part. We really feel that salvation comes from the Lord, and every person that comes to faith is, in fact, a miracle by definition— And but without God's word, they won't hear. And so that's our job is to proclaim. And so we really spend a lot of time doing our best to measure our work through proclamation. How many people are we doing? And We want to be based our strategies on not just working with a a small group of people, but are we what are we doing so that we can sow the seed amongst many people? And so the idea, let's sow that seed far and wide and be looking for those who have an interest, and then those are the ones that we can hone in on. Whereas if we just say, I'm gonna make three friends and work the rest of my life to raise to have them come to faith, that is a very inefficient way of doing it. But if we say, okay, and these are my buddies, and I'm gonna stick with them through thick and thin. But then I'm gonna look at some other people that aren't necessarily gonna even be my friends. But if I can share the gospel with them, then suddenly we can find out who is interested and where is that? If you look at the fourth soil, right? Who is the who is like a fourth soil person who is going to hear the word, it's going to germinate, it's going to grow, it's going to grow up, and it'll produce 30, 50, 100-fold? So in terms of
0: actually equipping someone,
3: what does... Um, what does an
0: equipped person look like? A- and the re- let me give you some background while I'm asking this question. I uh, conducted an interview uh, a couple of weeks ago. And I was talking to a guy who disciples through Athletes in Action. And one of the stories he used from the Bible was the story of the woman at the well, where there was a woman of um, questionable moral character. Uh, she meets Jesus. Uh, she does not spend any time in an equipping seminar or any time in any kind of mission training, but she kind of goes back, tells the village about what Jesus has done and introduces them to the character of Jesus. So when we are talking about equipping or when you're talking about equipping and, and the teams equipping people or discipling people, what does that, could you help me and help people? What, what does that look like? Could you define that kind of process? What does it look like for someone to become equipped or for a church to become equipped? What, what does that process look like?
3: When we disciple people, we try to disciple them in a way that they start obeying God from the very first moment they come to faith. And one of the big things that they need to obey God in is sharing their faith. So we try to get people to share their faith even when they first come to faith. And the idea is share, go tell somebody that you know what you know. Don't, you're not going to be able to give them the whole you know, if they, You're not going to be able to give them a big apologetic seminar. But you can tell them what you know and why you made decisions that you made. So what, but how is a church equipped? And to tell you the truth, we're really working through that. We've recently started an evangelism, a street evangelism ministry at our church. And so what we're doing is we're giving people tools, all kinds of tools. Um, one of the ways that I put it is that I, I do woodworking for a hobby and I have probably, I probably have 20 ways to cut wood in my garage right now. And um, but there's very specific tools I use for very specific things. I don't pick up any, any old tools and say, oh, well, this will cut wood, and just, if I'm trying to make a very precise hole that I'm going to slip something into, I'm going to use a drill and not a table saw because a table saw is not going to put a very good hole in a piece of wood, but a drill will put a very nice hole. If I have a project I want to do, I need all these different tools to really make that project easier to do. So when we go out and um, share the gospel, We need to have a variety of tools to use. And so that's what we do. We, Like in our evangelism team, we spend one one week a month. Three weeks of the month, we go out and evangelize. One week a month, we stay in. We debrief the last month, and we learn new techniques. And so um, I think an equipped church is one that has been taught how to share their faith. And one of the things that we do is um, we— so, yeah, we give them a, a variety of ways so that they can share their faith. I,
0: I guess what I, I struggle with a little bit is street evangelism just brings that kind of horror stories to me from my mm. upbringing in the 1980s in the U.K., where, you know, my church would go down to the local shopping center the pastor would jump on the literal soapbox and preach to the passing crowds and the expectation was that we would, one, be rent a crowd. We would stand around pretending to be very interested mm-hmm. and not, not mortifyingly embarrassed um, by what was going on. But then the expectation was we would go out and talk to people about what what, what they were saying. I, I think that there's part of me that just filled with horror about that being uh, being the most effective way of... And I think when we talk about evangelism, that's, that's kind of the instant thought that, that goes into my head. So, so yeah. I, I guess I guess the part I would add to it too is is where does where does that where does evangelism and discipleship where do they intersect? Because when we talked about discipleship, it's more like we're talking about spending time with people, developing a relationship. So, how do those two ideas, equipping a church to be able to go out and evangelize on the streets, versus equipping a church to disciple, what, how how do those two two mm-hmm. things intersect?
3: Right. I would say that they, they, those two things overlap and they sort of they fold into themselves. So we don't, when we do street evangelism, we don't, and, uh, there's no soapboxes involved. Um, and so, <laughs> but what we do is we break up into groups of two, usually a couple of people each. And we go around and we go to an area that's a, a public area, and we we do we, we start extraordinarily awkward conversations. And we go up to this person and say, hey, we're from a local church, and we're walking around, and we're asking people if we can pray for them. Is there anything we can pray for you about? And m- most people say no. Some people will start speaking English and then suddenly forget English and say, oh, I don't speak English. Um, and then um, we have some people that blow us off. Some people will mock us. Um, but there's other people that will say, "Yes, I have something I want you to pray for me about." Yeah. And we had we have an amazing story about one. Uh, this uh, one of our uh, people went up to someone and said, "Hey, is there a thing I can pray for?" You? She says, "Oh yes." And she pulled her aside and just like poured her heart out to her. And so what the idea is that we're 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 sowing the seed widely, and yeah. There's a, th- most people are going to say, nope, don't want to hear from you. Some people say, oh, yeah, pray for help. You know, it's COVID. But um, but every once in a while, a person will it'll strike a chord with somebody. And so then we try to press in, and we, we it is an awkward thing, but we've had people come to faith, and we have people that are being discipled, and we have people that are now attending our church. And so our job is to be obedient. And the Lord says, go and make disciples. And you have to do that with your mouth. And this is is the way I look at it. And we talk about this a lot, is that if you go to someone and you share the gospel with them and they don't get it and they don't care about it and they blow you off, what has happened? You've had another chance to practice sharing your faith. So that someday, and that's what it is, We, we spend a lot of time Talking. And then what we do is we tend to – if we if they allow us to pray for them and we can't share the gospel with them, we usually share the gospel while we pray. That's just we, – we, we give the gospel. <laughs> just sneak it in there. We, yeah, we thank the yeah. Lord that he came and he yeah. saved us from our sins. And that sure. we can. And so the idea is that we want to really flip the script because we want to be compassionate people that are going out and talking. And no, very few people say, oh, get away from me, you horrible human being. Asking me if you can pray for me, What? Yeah. People don't say that. People are usually—they usually have a like, oh, well, you know what? I'm I'm good. But then some people say, yeah, why don't you pray for me? And our feeling is that they get so much information about Christians being a very particular way, especially in the United States, especially like I live in the Bay Area in the Silicon Valley, um, and it, there's a very pers- a very distinct idea of people have when they hear they're you're from a church or you're a Christian, mm-hmm. and it's not right. It's incorrect. And they get it from the media and they get it from the news. They get it from a whole bunch of different areas, but they're not getting it because they know believers. And so we want to change that. We want to be people of compassion that go out and say, we care about you. We would like to pray for you. And we have a um, we have a, a card now that we go with, and it's got a QR code on it so that if we can – we try to get people's phone number or give them our phone number so that we can be followed up on. And people can't remember what they haven't heard. Yeah. And we've heard a lot of people talk about, you know, that have come to faith, not necessarily through our thing, but uh, uh, people I've heard have come to faith recently. It's because, you know what, I was going through a hard time, and I remembered something I'd heard long ago. And so we want to have someone hear the gospel or hear from a, a person that is a, a Christ follower, is a Christian, and is different from what they've heard about Christians.
0: Yeah, yeah. And how can they believe if they haven't heard? So. Amen. Yeah, exactly. It so, and I think it's it's funny as well as you were talking there. I was thinking back about the kind of conversation we had earlier about unreached people too. If you have an unreached people group, they're not going to just show up on your doorstep uh, to learn about Christ. That there there has to be a sent aspect to what we're doing as Christians. Um, I, I think I talked about this in a podcast recently. I was talking about the field of dreams. I used an American uh film which people probably don't understand but the field of dreams mentality the build it and they will come mentality which we are guilty of falling into sometimes this idea that if we build a good program if we build a great church um they people will just come to it but people who have no concept of who jesus is and no concept of the gospel that that, that's nothing to them A, a great sermon a great worship service Uh, A great children's program adds nothing to them. Um, But actually, we need to either provide something that they actually need, practically need, uh, or uh, we need to go to them too with with the good news as well, that kind of combination.
3: Yeah, and you have to figure that if they're from a a Muslim background, they've they've been told about Christians, and they've said, and especially if they're from a Muslim background, a Muslim country especially, and they're coming to the U.S., They've been told everybody's a Christian there, which is—I mean, you and I just shudder at that idea, right? Yeah. But um, but they've been told everyone's a Christian there, and they're all immoral. That we can that we can agree to, I think. And <laughs> they are all you know they, they all these things about their culture, and they would say and they're all Christians. So the if a person is in trouble and they're from a different religious background, whether it's Muslim or Hindu or Sikh or whatever. Um, the last place they're going to go to is a church for a bunch of—they're going to find a bunch of immoral people that don't really like them that much that wish you weren't in their country.
0: What fills me with with great sadness inside, too, is is knowing that there is an outside chance that if they, they turned up to a church, they may find that, too.
3: Yeah, I, I hate to think—I hope it's not—I don't think it's on my church, but yeah. there are. There are many that—and that's— what. That's what we need to do is help people to, to take away some of the stigma and some of the fear. A lot of equipping a church to reach out to just to people from a Muslim background is a lot of equipping them is to get it, getting past the fear and getting them to meet Muslims. With like, We have a lot of different times where we'll have like a, a, a friendship day where there'll be, um, and this is all over throughout all of our ministries, is that we'll have a day where they'll get together with um, people. They'll, maybe they'll make a connection with a mosque and a local church. And they'll say, hey, let's get together one day and have like a chat, you know. And so uh, whatever that might look like, whether that's just a day out in, you know, in a park or whether it's like a time where like maybe the uh, an imam can speak or and then maybe the pastor can speak or maybe it's just a dinner that has sort of guided conversations. But the, the thing that everyone says, once they finally meet someone from a different background, the the, the, the overarching statement is always, oh they're just like us. And that's exactly it. And that's, yeah. you know, where I've lived in the world, you you know, from the most, I, when we live with the Samburu, they are people that live very close to the earth. They're extraordinarily underdeveloped. The, at the end of the day, they're just like us. They're trying to educate their kids, whatever that might look like. It looks a lot different. They're not usually necessarily looking for book education, but they're trying to feed their family and they're trying to please God, whatever that, Whatever that looks like, you know, yeah. Whatever yeah. that might look like for them. So we were trying mm-hmm. to give them a clear view of what pleasing God is.
0: Yeah. So. Yeah. It's funny. I think you were the first American that I spent any actual length of time with. So you know, having lived with an American for a year, I was very surprised uh, to find that you weren't as loud uh, and as and as as fat as I'd been told to believe. So.
3: Uh... <laughs> <laughs> you know, I feel responsible for your marriage in many ways because. So I hadn't met Megan until after you were long married. I just did feel like, you know, I was sort of your introduction to American culture. And right. um and it was it was good enough that you were actually found one of us.
0: I know, yeah, and married a girl from the Bay Area too. So it must have been that Oh yeah. whole yeah. Must have been that whole Bay Area <laughs> that vibe. culture, that vibe that's going on there there too, that Californian vibe. So <laughs> so so Rick, I'd just like to kind of wrap this up. I'd like to get a little bit practical application-wise, if we have listeners that kind of live in an area that have uh, a high population of immigrants living in the area too, uh, how would you advise them to kind of start to get involved or, or start to enact this? Where where does someone start? Because I think lots of times we, we might listen to a talk, an interview like this, we might be inspired by something that's said, but it's really difficult to even know where to begin if they're interested in kind of addressing this issue uh, in their church or in their community. So do you have any kind of advice for
1: them?
3: Yeah, I would say look up, um, go online and look up immigration services in your area and find out what is being done for people from other countries. And go and see if you can volunteer and make the print. If you're bold, go to the part of the city where these immigrants live and strike up a conversation with somebody and say, hey, you don't look like you're from around here. Where do you come from? And try to do it in a way that doesn't sound like you're from the um, immigration. <laughs> services, but, um, yeah, but, um, but just, you know, it's, it's, it's fairly easy for me. I uh, When I hear people with an accent or um, I can say, oh, I lived in Africa for a long time. You sound like you might be not from here. Where uh, where do you come from? And so that, that that's pretty easy for me. But, um, but yeah, just me say, oh, um, you know, I... Just really um, love it that we have people from in this city from all different parts of the world. Where do you come from? Just couch it in a way that it's not like they're like, "Hey, where are you from?" But um, but yeah, just strike up a conversation with somebody and just say, and it, and you'll find that this is if if you really like for the Super Bowl. So that now we've we've made that it's a really really bold invite them over to your house. You know there's a there's a statistic going around that eighty five percent of international students in the United States that come to the United States for education, eighty five percent of those students never see the inside of an American home. and and you you lived in uh, a, what we call a warm culture uh, when you're in Kenya. And I think that you noticed that you hardly walked down the road without someone saying, hey, why don't you come in for some tea? And <laughs> or, or, some, or some sheep stomach
0: soup, which was uh, <laughs> an interesting experience. But, yes, no, I know exactly what you're talking
1: about. So,
3: yeah. And so if you come from a, a culture that's really hospitable and you live there for four years for being educated and no one even says, hey, how you doing? Where are you from? I think that's kind of horrifying. Yeah, and um, yeah, it, must, it it says a lot, and it doesn't say what we wanted to say. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, be be bold, and I think what one thing you'll find out, they're just like you. Yeah, they speak a little different. They have a, they probably speak far more. If you're an American, they speak far more languages than you do for sure. But um, but yeah, they're um, they're really probably just like you. In terms of kind
0: of equipping or being equipped, any any recommendations on resources
3: or books? Yes, there's a, there's a group called E3 Partners that we work with. We've partnered with them on a few things. Um, and you can look them up, and they have great resources on how to, how to teach, how, how to share your faith. Uh, if you want to look up a great way to do a great gospel presentation, is called Three Circles. If you just go on Google and you Google Three Circles, you will see some great things. Um, there is learn Bible stories. So the one thing that we've learned is that good evangelists are like good musicians. They practice. And I know people that are, I mean, I'm, I'm a, I'm a willing evangelist. I'm not a great evangelist, but I, I do my best, but I have some friends that are really good evangelists and they literally practice evangelism. They'll walk down the street in their mind saying, okay, what, how am I going to tell the gospel to this person to a person? And that's why even when we talk to people about the gospel who are resistant, we feel like, okay, but at least we practiced. And so mm-hmm. that's, yeah, So a lot of it is just doing it. But, yeah, that's um, those are a couple of great resources.
0: Earlier on in the beginning, uh, you told about how uh, your kind of life was affected by Carrie's short-term mm-hmm. uh, missions trip to Kenya. Um, are there any kind of opportunities for people that maybe are thinking – that that I guess they're the crazy super bold. I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know if there's any, to your, to your scale, I don't know if there's another level that we haven't even got to. But, um, you know, for people that are really interested in maybe exploring this beyond just kind of engaging where they are, but they want to see this as something that they're being called to, um, are there any kind of opportunities in terms of where they could find out about more about the organization or more about short-term volunteering opportunities mm-hmm. or taking trips to engage with some of these teams?
3: So we have, if you go to our website, uh, aimint.org diaspora, you can find out about our dream teams. And what those are, we have, uh, we go in the summertime, we go to Europe and we reach migrants from Africa. And we have a training ahead of time. This year, we don't know what it's going to look like. We, um, but we are for sure going to at least have a virtual mission trip. And that'll blow your mind. So that you can join from anywhere. So if you go to our webpage, you will find information. We're, we're hoping we might, I'm actually having a meeting about this tomorrow, but um, we, we might end up in Malta this summer and there's a huge number of African migrants. It's along the, that is the one of the big pathways from Africa to Europe. So, but we are gonna look at probably doing a virtual short-term trip that you would learn a lot more about. You would be equipped. You would learn a lot about uh, different cities in Europe where we're doing work and you will have a chance to pray for people and you'll meet some incredible folks. So,
0: and then, um, if people are, people are crazy and they want to find out more about you and Carrie, is there a place that they can, they can go to
3: specifically learn about you and your family and what you guys do? Send me an email, rick.maples at org. That would be the that would be Excellent. the easiest, and we will connect them with anything. We love to interact with people, and um, so I think making a personal connection is going to be the easiest. Yeah.
0: Well, Rick, I really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Uh, thank you for talking with us. Um, this was really helpful. Really interesting too. I hope. Hope.
3: I hope the experience was okay for you. <laughs> hey, oh, thanks, James. This is great. Yeah, very good. I appreciate your time. I love your podcast. It's great. Okay, excellent. Well, that's, I will make sure that we
0: turn the volume up on this on this part of the interview, just so people people heard that well. So very good. <laughs> okay, thanks, Rick. Okay, so there we go. That was my interview with with Rick. I really enjoyed doing that interview as usual andy uh, you should know that the interview was probably about 15 20 25 minutes longer it's so difficult when i talk to these people to, uh, to, to find things to cut mm, yeah uh, most of the time i just try and cut out the parts where i talk uh, yes. and then talk too. but i just find it so fascinating and interesting uh, to talk to different people just learn about how they see the world how they see mission and how they go about it
1: yeah, especially Rick, who's so much experience uh, from everything that he's done with with AIM. It was really, really good to uh, to hear. Um, I just loved what he said about just getting involved in in the mess of life of people, and uh, and that really is, you know, when, whenever you, James, you know, whenever you're getting involved with discipleship and and true evangelism, you do get involved in the in the mess of people's lives, and they're able to show God's love. Uh, through through that, which is really good. So I appreciate yeah. it. Well done, Rick, and well done, James. Yeah. Well, thank you, Andy.
0: So well, and it's funny. What I really appreciate about Rick too is that idea of discipleship, and he talked about and that idea about coming together in the mess of life. When I was 18, and I lived with with Rick and Carrie in Kenya, uh, I really got to kind of experience that firsthand. Oftentimes, we, when we're defining discipleship, it's good to think of it like. Uh, you know, that kind of relationship, that family. And for a whole year, I got to be part of Rick and Carrie's family. Mm -hmm. And I think what what really hit me, it was lots of things that changed in me that year. One of the things that Rick and Carrie did in terms of discipling me is that they really invested in me. And I think that's a real key part of discipleship. Even though I was young, um, they treated what I had to say and what I had to contribute as having value. Mm -hmm. And that meant so much to me as a young Christian uh, where I felt like my spiritual input counted for something, uh, mm-hmm. they asked my opinion on things, um, and that was huge for my development um, as a Christian. And along with, you know, practically being cared for, practically being loved and looked after too, um, and then also getting to live life on life together, I got to mm-hmm. see Rick and Carrie do the mess of life together as a family. Yeah. Uh, they had two young children at the time, and Africa's messy. Uh, we mm. were living in the middle of nowhere. There was lots of things that went wrong. Maybe it was mm. money being stolen from the school. Maybe the car mm. was being broken into on our way to town. And watching them as an older Christian couple navigate through that mess um, showed me how to navigate through that mess and following mm. Jesus too. And I think for yeah. me, that was, when he's talking about discipleship and he's talking about the mess of life, immediately I thought back to the time I spent with him and just experiencing what that discipleship looked like and what it meant for me, too. Okay, so another episode of Call to the Far Shore. Down. Hopefully, Andy, people fast-forwarded through the first eight minutes of this episode and got to got to the interview. Well, I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> yeah. Um, so keeping an eye out this week, we're going to try and do another bonus update on some happenings at Revive. And then next week's episode, uh, we're going to be tackling the issue of giving and finances as it uh, relates to mission and international mission.
1: Great. Looking forward to it, James. And we'll catch you all again on The Far Shore. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to get in contact
0: with the show, you can email us at international.net To learn more about the work of Revive International, You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or our website, revive-international.org. Please subscribe to keep track of new episodes. We look forward to you joining us on our next journey
2: being called To The Far Shore.